Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. In this episode, I speak to the historian Robert Peterson and we examine the Polish use of biological and chemical warfare against the Third Reich. Robert is speaking today in a personal capacity on his research in the area which was published in the Non-Proliferation Review. Thank you so much for coming on on the show today. It's, we've been trying to organise this remotely for a few months, but between family commitments and other developments, it has been one of those meetings which we've <laughs> managed to miss a couple of times. But we're here today and it's happening and I'm very, very excited. Now, you and I know each other, but only because of the joy that is Twitter and which has gradually put us in contact with each other. I think we first interacted over some World War II related trivium. So why don't we start by you talking a little bit about how you got into this area and your professional background. Um, I am a historian. I have an MA in History and Middle East Studies from the University of Southern Denmark. And then I worked on my PhD, which was about democratic control and civil military relations in Denmark. I was then subsequently employed by the Center for Biosecurity and Biopreparedness, where I became responsible for uh, working with biosecurity, that is prevention of bioterrorism attack and acts of biocrime, and uh, also work with biopreparedness. That is, if somebody intentionally or by accident, for example, there is an intentional attack or an accidental spill, then we have to respond. Uh, so uh, we have this organization in Denmark. And um, so you say you're a historian by training, right? Yes. And so other than the kind of CB stuff, is there a broader set of time periods you're really interested in? Yes, I have actually always been very interested in the, the two world wars, also the Cold War. But I never thought I would be able to contribute to anything uh, of interest to one of these subjects. So I was very interested and intrigued when I found that uh, chemical and biological weapons had actually, on a low scale, been used in the Second World War. So that was one of the reasons why I decided to investigate this topic. Basically, what I discovered was that, I mean, this is not really a secret in Poland, but generally speaking, it is toned down. It is not something that is highlighted. My, I think it is fair to say that my article was the first one that independently on its own investigated the history behind the Polish use of biological and for that matter also chemical weapons, uh, how it came about and what the effect were. So I guess there's a few places we can start our story today. Uh, I know in the paper you wrote, you started at the end actually with the uh, execution and other punishments meted out to those accused of committing a chemical and biological warfare against the Third Reich. But I guess the other way of of starting the story is to think about context and emergence of chemical and biological weapon-related research and development in Poland in the interwar period. 
Poland was resurrected in 1918 following the end of the First World War. The rebirth of Poland was extremely violent and Poland was surrounded by hostile neighbors. Even after fighting and winning uh, six major wars against its neighbors, Poland was still in a weak state surrounded by hostile powers and uh, also very unstable internally. And there was a military coup in 19, uh, if I remember correctly, 1926 by uh, Marshal Pilsudski, who uh, created an authoritarian government. But there was still resistance to a new Polish state. And uh, one of the groups who assisted them were Ukrainian nationalists. And there's evidence in Polish sources that they also had plans to use bacteria against the Polish state. It is unclear if they actually ever used it. And there's also evidence that they had plans to use uh, poison against Polish government officials. There was a large Ukrainian insurgency, so there were acts of terror and violence. And there is, for example, evidence that there was a deliberate outbreak of glanders among Polish cavalry horses in the early 1920s. So uh, it is possible that there was early on a chemical and biological threat against the new Polish state. But what really got the Poles going was the fact that they had a very good intelligence service and gathered intelligence about what was going on in the Soviet Union. And it is well known that the Soviet Union already in the 1920s were busy working on biological weapons. And by 1928, most experts agreed that there was a formal program established by the Soviet Union to develop and research and develop and produce biological weapons. And the Poles were well aware of it. It was even something that was mentioned in Polish sources. There was, for example, a newspaper article I found from 1925. The internet is a great thing. You can find a lot of good stuff on the internet. And uh, it mentioned that there was a research facility uh, outside. I think they call it Petrograd, Petrograd, uh, which later would become Leningrad, where biological weapons were being researched and a biological bomb was being developed. And so the Poles were quite well uh, informed about what the Soviets were doing. And the Poles also suspected that the Germans were busy developing biological weapons. Then came the question how to respond to that. One way the Poles decided to respond was to play an active role in arms control negotiations. And uh, it was actually to some extent, to a large extent, perhaps uh, on a Polish initiative that the Geneva Protocol was negotiated in 1925, which banned the use of chemical and biological weapons in warfare. This was a very important arms control agreement, but it didn't ban the research, development and production of chemical and biological weapons. Another uh, step that the Poles took was to create a very strong biodefense program so that if biological weapons were actually used, the Polish military would be ready to investigate and contaminate, decontaminate and isolate an uh, outbreak of disease, for example. Finally, the Poles also began to research biological weapons. And by the mid-1930s, I think it is fair to say that there was a biological weapons program 
uh, in Poland. I mean, small-scale research already began in 1928 at a chemical warfare facility in Warsaw, and it was under the auspices of the second department of the Polish general staff, that is Polish military intelligence. The, the head of the Polish biological weapons program as late as 1933 was a man named Alfons Ostrowski. But it was a really small scale program. It only had three bacteriologists, one technicians and one cleaning assistant. But it began to expand by the mid 1930s. And it had then a research facility in Warsaw and another research facility at the military fortress at Brest. And uh, one of the prominent scientists in this program was, for example, uh, Dr. Jan Goldberg who created a new technique to grow Salmonella tufi using artificial uh, food source. And there was also a female scientist uh, who developed a new technique to make botulinum toxin into a dry powder and storing germs for dehydration. And they also experimented with, for example, disseminating uh, biological weapons uh, in an aerosol from a car that drove through a city. They also experimented with, for example, uh, using artillery shells uh, to deliver and disseminate biological agents. But uh, I can see from documents from the Polish military that they didn't like this idea because uh, I think Polish artillery shells could only fly 14 to 16 kilometers. So there were some attempts to see if biological weapons could be used for conventional warfare, but Based on the evidence, it seems like the main main emphasis was to see if biological warfare could be used for sabotage and diversion. And this was actually something that the Poles were actually quite strong at. Uh, there was a strong tradition in Poland uh, for subversive activities and the Poles had a very good intelligence service. And uh, the Poles had already a lot of experience with the uh, what we could call fifth column activities in warfare. But what proved to be a restraint for them was the fact that they didn't have a lot of resources uh, to work with. So there were a lot of good ideas and a lot of ambitions, but uh, they were constrained by their financial resources. By 1939, war was approaching. It was clear that the Poles facing an invasion threat by the spring of 1939 we know that the Polish military intelligence did make preparations to create a stay-behind network that could uh, fight in case some parts of Poland would be occupied by an enemy invasion, that is, by Nazi Germany. And I have speculated, although I have, don't have proof, that the Polish biological weapons program also became a part of these efforts. There is evidence by a Polish historian named Adam Gafar who has mentioned that uh, before the war, the production of biological weapons was increased and that the Polish intelligence operatives were trained in teams of 10 to 12 in uh, biological warfare, including correct storage of bacteria. This was a course that lasted for four days. So there was actually some evidence that uh, some preparations were made, and it is also entirely possible that these also included uh, some preparations to use biological weapons in case of an enemy attack. I mean, what hit them in September 1939 when the Nazis attacked 
was a shock to them. I mean, uh, command and control of the Polish army quickly broke down. There were a lot of Polish units that fought valiantly and courageously, but they quickly lost their ability to fight a coordinated defense. And uh, they lost touch with the high command, and it, of course, also didn't help that the Polish high command fled. And the final uh, death blow to the Polish army happened when the Soviets attacked by, I think, September 17th, in accordance with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So by uh, the early October, all the main fighting in Poland had ceased, and Poland was occupied by Nazi Germany and by the Soviet Union in accordance with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and the country was divided and ceased to exist. So, I mean, listening to you speak about this, what I think is really interesting is that even as someone that has a reasonable familiarity with the history of biological chemical warfare, to hear you talking about kind of pre-Second World War biological weapon programs is Mm -hmm. kind of feels kind of strange because they're associated so prominently with post-Second World War, 1960s, 1970s, 80s. And also, of course, to hear you talk about chemical weapons, we tend to think about First World War battlefield use of chemical weapons, rather than, as you say, the stay-behind use or even terror use of, of these weapons. So maybe it's worth us briefly taking a little plod around what other states were doing. So to start us off, I guess it's worth saying that Obviously, during the First World War, we know we saw the development of large-scale chemical warfare programs for battlefield use in a number of states. But there was also some biological weapon work as well. And I wonder if you could start us there and maybe we can use that to contextualise what what would come later in, in Poland. Yes, of course, of course. What happened during the First World War and the First World War is, uh, for me, where everything basically began. Everything began to come into fruition. You saw the large-scale use of chemical warfare on the battlefield, but you also saw small-scale use of uh, biological warfare agents for sabotage and diversion. We know that uh, German saboteurs use biological agents uh, for sabotage against uh, transportation animals. And uh, we know that the French, to some extent, did something similar. But at the same time, it was also very restrained. I mean, there were some suggestions, for example, in the German high command, uh, that they could use their Zeppelins to bombard London with, I think it was, plague. And uh, these suggestions were turned down. I mean, there were still some moral and ethical values that uh, governed the German warfare effort. Basically, yes, biological weapons were used, but they were used clandestinely and covertly, and they were used against transportation animals. To my knowledge, nobody deliberately used biological warfare agents against uh, humans during the First World War. But nevertheless, I will actually argue that the use of biological warfare in the First World War was extremely important. Because everybody expected in the interwar period that what happened in the First World War would happen on an even grander scale in the next major war, which would become the Second World War. Uh, So you would see large-scale battlefield use of uh, chemical warfare and probably also uh, biological warfare. And there was the scare that uh, the development of the strategic bomber would be used to deliver biological and, most importantly, chemical weapons to cities. 
that would be completely obliterated. I mean, you can see some very scary description about how cities were expected, a city like London was expected to be completely wiped off the face of the world in a large-scale chemical attack. There was the view that the bomber would always get through and it was there was no defense against this. But what really happened is that it was the German use of biological warfare in the First World War that really set the trend, so to speak, because the Poles were really inspired of what happened. So, so the Polish use of biological weapons were to a large extent inspired by what the Germans did in the First World War. And you can see from articles that they knew about what the Germans did during the First World War. It was common knowledge by the, at least by the 1930s. Regarding programs, there was a biological weapons program in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union began to research biological weapons by, I believe, 1924. And some research and development were conducted throughout the 1920s. And no later than 1928, biological weapons program was created. We also know that the French, who had used chemical and biological weapons uh, in the First World War, initiated a biological weapons program. There was a scientist, I believe his name was Trillant. I, I'm not sure if I pronounce his name correctly, but he had this idea of using airplanes to deliver aerosols. That was very tricky, but he experimented with that. It is a bit unclear what happened with the German biological weapons program. I mean, most experts believe that the Germans ceased work on biological weapons by the 19, uh, by 1918, when the First World War ended. But quite frankly, we don't know for sure. And uh, there's an interesting story about a man named Hans Seel, who worked at something called the Kaiser Wilhelm Gesellschaft, that was a large group of uh, scientific research institutes. And he was removed from working on chemical and biological warfare projects I believe in 1933, because he revealed to an intelligence officer that he was doing classified work for the Reichswehr, the German military, the predecessor to the Wehrmacht on uh, chemical weapons, but also on bacteria that was supposed to be used against the Poles to poison Polish water supply in case of a war. So I believe it is possible that there was also some biological uh, weapons research uh, going on in Germany, but there's very little evidence for it. The British had their port and down facility, and they were also conducting research on chemical and also biological weapons. I believe that in 1934, there was a story provided by an editor in the UK called Wickham Steed that mentioned that German scientists had conducted secret biological warfare experiments. For example, in the Parisian subway station, they had used a harmless pathogen to, to see what will happen if they try to disseminate biological warfare agents inside, uh, for example, uh, the metro station in, the, in, in Paris. It is very much up for debate if this was uh, correct or not, but it had a very huge effect on many countries at that time. A lot of countries decided to speed up their research into biological weapons. I can also see from uh, open sources and Polish, Polish sources that the Poles were also very frightened by the fact that apparently Germany was researching biological weapons. 
So it also had a huge effect on the polls. For example, the French intensified their research on biological weapons following the Weekend Steed story. So a lot of countries were researching biological weapons. Interesting enough, there's also a curious connection between Poland and Japan. We know that Poland and Japan actually had a very close uh, relationship with each other. Poland was an early supporter of uh, Japan because uh, back in the early 20th century, they had a common enemy in Imperial Russia. And the Polish nationalists who hoped to regain independence supported the Russo-Japanese War, 1904-1905. So very early on, some connections with Japan were created and they were further developed following the Polish Declaration of Independence. And that also included an intensive intelligence collaboration. For example, the Poles established an intelligence outpost in Manchuria that was occupied by the Japanese. And uh, a lot of Japanese officers came to Poland to study Polish intelligence techniques. It is worth remembering that Poles were actually very good at signals intelligence at that time. They were the vanguard in signals intelligence at that time. Um, and they collaborated in gathering intelligence about the Soviet Union, including about the Soviet biological weapons program. And what is very interesting is also to notice that the Poles were aware of the fact that uh, the Japanese had a biological weapons program. And I believe it was in 1935 that there was a conference in Warsaw about biological weapons research between Japanese experts and Polish experts, uh, 1935, 1936. But I don't, I think it would be good too far to say that there was actually a collaboration because after the Second World War, and one of the reasons we know about this, in the last months of the Second World War, US military intelligence was very interesting to find out everything they could about the Japanese biological weapons program. So one of the reasons we actually know about the fact that the Poles knew about the Japanese biological weapons program in Manchuria was simply because American intelligence got in contact with some Poles who told them everything they could about what the Poles did doing before the war, uh, Polish biological warfare activities, but also what they knew about Japanese biological weapons activities. And they couldn't tell them that much, but they tried to help the Americans as much as they could by telling them what they knew about the Japanese research into biological weapons. So we know that from American sources. So then this interwar exploration of biological weapons uh, would form part of the broader backdrop for the emergence of Polish resistance uh, during the Second World War. So let's talk a little bit about that broader context uh, before we dig down into some of the specific allegations of use. I mean, it is necessary to stress that the Poles never expected what hit them in September 1939. Poland, September 1939. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest and sets the stage for World War II. Poland's 34 million inhabitants crushed, scattered, and enslaved. Tens of thousands of square miles of territory shrink before the movement of lightning-armored columns. Poland and the world learn the meaning of a grim new word, Blitzkrieg. 
there are a couple of things that need to be said about the occupation of Poland. I mean, the occupation of Poland was extraordinarily brutal. Both the Soviets and the Nazis attempted to exterminate uh, the Polish national uh, elite. Everybody who belonged to what you could call the intelligentsia were uh, exterminated and people were deported. Some historians claim that more or less than 1.5 million Poles were deported uh, to Siberia and Kazakhstan until the Soviet occupation ended in 1931. Uh, so it was a very brutal occupation, both on behalf of the Nazis and the Soviets. But nevertheless, very early on, resistance against uh, these two twin occupations began. and. Um, but at the same time, it was also necessary to get organized. And um, I mean, in the beginning, there were more than 100 resistant groups operating in Poland and the Polish government in exile. And it is important to stress that Poland actually never form formally surrendered. The Polish government left the country and a new Polish government was established first in France and later in, later in the war in the UK. And uh, the Polish government in exile felt the need to establish one uh, umbrella organization for everything. So it was decided to create a Polish um, uh, home army, it was called, ZWZ, uh, which would later become the AK, the Armia Krajowa. And their basic task was to prepare for an armed insurrection. That was their main job prepare the groundwork, both in civilian work and in military work, to prepare for an armed insurrection that would overthrow the enemy. Once the war had turned against the Germans and the Soviets, and um, until then, they should only use small-scale sabotage. And that is where biological and chemical weapons come in. Because we have this view that chemical and biological weapons are weapons of mass destruction. The Poles had a very different interpretation. For them, the main utility of especially biological weapons was the fact that you could use them quietly, that you could use them in silent sabotage, that you, for example, could infect a German garrison or spread bacteria on a train with German soldiers on leave, and the train would return to Germany and there would be a disease outbreak, but nobody would know what had happened, uh, how they had become infected. And uh, the Poles were attempting to develop techniques to conduct silent sabotage against the Nazi Germany and also against the Soviets until they were ready for an armed insurrections because they understood correlation of forces. They, they understood that if they launched an insurrection against a well-armed conventional military force, they would quickly be crushed. So they wanted to weaken uh, the enemy and cause confusion by conducting sabotage that could be camouflaged as uh, accidental disease outbreaks, natural disease outbreaks and accidental food poisoning and so on. And they went to great length to conduct this. So small scale use of biological weapons already began in the spring of 1940. There is, for example, a report by Stefan Rowetzki, who was the head of the Polish uh, Home Army at that time uh, until he was captured by the Gestapo in 1943, who explained to his superior, General Stoskowski, in March 1940, 
that he intended to use chemical, technical, bacteriological operations against the enemy for subversive and diversive actions. And to the extent it was possible, they actually wanted to use it by uh, using the fact that the Germans were deporting a lot of Poles for uh, forced labor inside the Third Reich. I think uh, by 1943, more than one million Poles were working as forced labor inside the Third Reich. And the Poles decided, well, why not use this and equip some of the Poles who were anyway going to the Third Reich to work with bacteria and conduct acts of sabotage inside the Third Reich and do it in a way that offered the Polish resistance deniability. Because what the Poles really feared was open combat and retaliation by the enemy. They were already facing a very harsh occupation by both the Soviets and by the Nazis, and they didn't want to create uh, reasons for retaliations against the Polish people. We know from uh, Soviet documents that some sabotage were also attempted in the eastern part of Poland. I have found a report by Soviet NKVD Commissar Ivan Serov, who wrote a report in April 1940 detailing Polish plans to lose biological weapons in response to deportations of the Poles to the east. So it both happened in the eastern part of Poland and Nazi-occupied part of Poland. By early 1941, after a brief break following the fall of France, the pace of the use of biological weapons were intensified because at that time there was actually fear that the Germans might actually invade the UK in 1941. That was, of course, before the British realized that the Germans were turning their attention towards the east, towards the Soviet Union. In February 1941, the pace of the use of biological weapons was intensified. And I have found a lot of reports. Some of them were shared with, for example, SOE, Special Operations Executive, uh, detailing the use of biological weapons. The most detailed report was, uh, I believe, from March 1941, which mentioned that Polish with a home army had access to eight laboratories for the cultivation uh, and preparation of pathogens that uh, so far the Poles had achieved to cause 1,784 cases of disease outbreaks and 149 deaths among the occupants. 680 horses had been infected with, for example, glanders, and they had also used uh, Salmonella tufi in 17 uh, towns. They had infected cattle with Bacillus anthraxis and used rabies. Lusa virus in uh, three different counties, and also on several occasions contaminated the food uh, destined for Germany or trains carrying Germans from Polish German territory to the Reich with bacteria. So by 1941, this was a very large scale uh, effort on behalf of the Poles. And you can see from the documents that the use of biological weapons actually continued throughout the war. But at the same time, by 1941, uh, it is like they, I'm beginning to run out of uh, primary source material regarding the communication between the Polish Home Army and the Polish government in exile. So what I did, I took a very specific case study and looked at the case of the WKZO, if I should try to pronounce it in Polish, the Wielkopolskie Kierownictwo 
Sviasko Odvetu, the Vyalkopolska leadership of the Union of Retaliation, that occupied in what was called the Reichsgau Vaterland, which was actually a part of Poland that had been directly annexed into the Third Reich. And that group was active from uh, 1940 until 1942, when it was destroyed by the Gestapo, German secret police. And what is interesting about the WKZO is that it is actually very well described by both Polish historians and in German primary sources. A lot of them are actually available in U.S. archives. So it is actually possible to put what the Polish historians have come up with. And for example, there's a lot of interest in Poznan about the WKZO. So uh, a lot of excellent research has been done by Polish historians, uh, local historians, and in uh, regard with regard to the WKZO. But you can also uh, compare it to what did the Germans say about this in their reports. And some archives are available in, for example, the United States, but there are also some documents available, surviving documents uh, from Poland that is available, for example, in Wutz. And I mentioned this because uh, Wutz was part of what the German called Reichsgau Vaterland. So um, the capital of Reichsgau Vaterland was uh, Posen, which now is better known as Poznan. And like I mentioned before, this is a part of Poland that actually had a very sizable German minority and was therefore annexed into the Third Reich following the German invasion of Poland in 1939. And uh, the Germans wanted to create a model province. It should be a national socialist province. And uh, therefore, they appointed a very brutal guy called Arthur Greiser as both Reichstadthalter and Gauleiter. And he his job was basically to create not only a German province, but, an, but a national socialist province. He had a very uh, brutal policy of Germanization. More than 300,000 Poles and Jews were deported from the area. And at the same time, he imported more than a half a million Germans. The number actually reached 1 million by 1944 into the area in order to Germanize the area. It was also the area where you first saw the use of poison gas. Experimental use of poison gas occurred in uh, October 1939 in a place called Fort Sieben outside Posen, which was an old Polish military fortress. And one of the death camps would later be established in uh, the Reichsgau uh, called uh, Kulmhof, uh, better known as Chelmno. There were resistance in the province, but the fact that this area was annexed into the Third Reich meant that resistance was extremely difficult, much more difficult in what was known as the general government. It is uh, often said that the Poles created one of the most efficient resistance organizations during the Second World War in Nazi-occupied Europe, but conditions were very much different in uh, the Reichsgau Waterland because, as I mentioned, it was annexed into uh, Germany. There was a very large German minority in the area, and it was uh, closed off from the rest of the general government. And therefore, it was very difficult to access from other areas of Nazi-occupied Poland. But nevertheless, there was resistance. 
one of the groups that was created by a stay behind network before the war it was headed by a lieutenant named Seswaf Surma. He was later replaced by a name called Senan Plusinski, and that was that would later become the WKZO. And they especially specialized in the use of uh, chemical and biological warfare sabotage, but they also conducted other acts of sabotage, for example, the destroyment of a German uh, storage depot in early 1942. Two of the main persons involved in these operations were Dr. Henrik Günther and Dr. Franciszek Witaszek, and they had a large network available. They also had some female assistants who helped them a lot with the productions and the development of biological weapons. One of the main problems they actually had was to to produce the agents. Uh, Some agents were delivered from Warsaw, but I had, as I mentioned before, it was actually very difficult to transport something from one part of the so-called general government to the Reisgau Vaterland. And when the bacteria actually reached uh, Posen, it turned out that the bacteria were dead, so they were not useful. But luckily for the WKZO, they got an insider inside uh, the Rice University Posen. That was a woman called Helena Sikierska, who worked for the Germans. And she actually stole pathogens from the Germans, which were used to produce biological weapons by Dr. Günther and Dr. Vitaschek. And they established a network of uh, laboratories and private homes, for example, in the home belonging to a laboratory technician named Sonja Gosna. And they used techniques like, for example, uh, growing bacteria using meat in uh, pots. I, I think that's the right word. And then place it in an oven. So it was very improvised. And... Of course, the results actually varied a lot. I mean, uh, they managed to successfully infect, according to German sources, 14 to 16 horses at a place called, by the Germans, called Gnesen, which actually resulted in a large-scale investigation because military horses were very important for the German military during the Second World War. And uh, because of these actions, uh, more than 600 horses were uh, removed from military service until it was established if they were healthy, if they could be used for military service. They also uh, put down bacteria into butter at the dairy at Ostrovo, and the butter was later delivered into the Reich. They also infected horses belonging to a Waffen SS unit that traveled through Posen during a brief visit. And they also contaminated a rice, uh, a labor camp at Rogasen uh, with bacteria. But their main efforts was actually the use of bacteria and poison on restaurants and cafes. Because in Posen, the Germans had a system that was very similar to the apartheid system or the Jim Crow system in the United States. Poles were not allowed into restaurants, Poles were not allowed into cinemas, etc., etc. But Polish servants were allowed to work at facilities where Germans had access. So five Polish servants worked at restaurants and cafes that was uh, visited by German guests, including high-ranking Nazis. And the the WKZO tried to assassinate some of the high-ranking Nazis 
by using a combination of bacteria and chemicals, primarily uranium salt, to contaminate or uh, food or uh, beverage. Now, so uranium salt, I saw this referred to in your paper. Um, what's uranium salt? Uranium salt is a hazardous chemical substance. I'm actually not aware what it is used for, but the Poles had this idea that it was very useful as a poison. They believed that uranium salt would be able to kill somebody silently over a long period, so it would not be possible to trace back who had used it. But the thing is about uranium salt is that it is more a hazardous substance than a dangerous substance. So uh, you really have to take the substance for a very long time and uh, in large quantities before it actually has an effect. And I don't think the Poles actually understood that back during the Second World War. And you can actually see from the, the German reports about the WKZO that the Poles were very disappointed because they couldn't see any effect from it, which, which is not surprising for us because we know that it, it, would, it would have taken a very long time to actually have an effect. But back then, the Poles actually had a large hopes for the use of uranium salt. So they used that kind of poisoning, but apparently with very disappointing results. But nevertheless, they actually managed to cause five fatalities and 26 cases of disease using Salmonella tufi. I have speculated in my article that they may, it all, may also have used other kinds of bacteria, but there's no firm evidence for it. So I think five deaths and uh, five de fatalities and 26 disease outbreaks is the most sure uh, certain number. The Germans actually had a very good counterintelligence uh, service in the Gestapo. They were very good at finding and destroying resistant groups operating in Nazi-occupied Europe. And the uh, Germans were slowly working uh, their way towards uh, who were the members of the WKZO. The group was uh, largely destroyed in April 1942. But there are basically uh, two stories about how the group were destroyed. One claim is that the group conducted grand last operation where they infected and or rather poisoned five members of the German military intelligence, uh, the Abwehr, and accidentally also poisoned two civilians. But the point is, I have not found any evidence uh, for that in the German documents. It is not something that is found a reference to, and I can't see why they should not tell about it if that actually had occurred. And there's also something else. I mean, each time a German uh, government official was assassinated by the Poles, the German took severe uh, retaliatory steps. In early 1942, two German Gestapo officials were assassinated. And for that uh, alone, the Germans executed, if I remember correctly, more than 100 Poles, 50 for each Gestapo official. They also deported a lot of their family members to concentration camps. So they, they took some very hard retaliatory steps whenever a German government official was attacked or killed by Polish resistance. And nothing of that sort happened. So what I believe is more likely to have happened is that the Germans were slowly, through infiltrations and the use of uh, agents, 
working their way towards the WKZO. They, they knew there was a resistance organization operating in Posen and in the area surrounding Posen. And by April and May 1942, they began to arrest uh, all the members of the WKZO that they could get their hands on. And basically the entire group was destroyed. It, it ceased to exist. I only think that one actually managed to get away. So in total, 35 members of the WKZO were arrested, including Dr. Günther and Dr. Vitasek. The Gestapo also confiscated a large amount of chemical and bacteria. There are actually in the German records some photographs of the, some of the material that they confiscated. And the next eight months followed a lot of interrogations. And it also has to be said that torture was widely used by against the members of the WKZO. Some of the resistance fighters tried to be, commit suicide. One of them, Hieronym Schubke, who was one of the waiters working at one of the cafes where they used the poisoning and the infections, he tried to commit suicide three times. Allegedly, Dr. Vitasek also tried to commit suicide during his first interrogation, but he failed. And basically, he, his back was broken during the torture. I mean, he was really severely tortured. By January 1943, the Nazis decided that they had found out what they needed to find out and there were no further people to arrest. So they executed all the members of the WKZO and deported a lot of their family members to concentration camps. And it is also worth recalling that, for example, Dr. Vitasek, two of Dr. Vitasek's children, his daughters, were actually moved into the Lebensborn program. It was actually a program that was a breeding program for the SS to breed pure Aryans for the SS. But because the program was going so slowly, the Nazis turned to stealing children from Nazi-occupied territories like Poland. And uh, miraculously, they were actually found after the Second World War. And Dr. Vitasek's wife actually survived the war and was actually able to um, find her children again but very severe cost uh, for the WKZO. And because Poland, after the Second World War, became a communist dictatorship, there was, uh, for a very long time, a great deal of reluctance to actually talk about it. Some research was actually conducted in, into the use of biological and chemical weapons as early in the 1950s. And actually, by the 1970s, a book was actually published by a Ministry of Defense publishing house was called Ogien v. Apukach. And by now, the, the, the contributions of the WKZO is widely recognized in Posen. And I think even a street has been named after Dr. Vitasek. So there's a lot of respect and understanding for what they did during the Second World War and the great sacrifice they gave uh, for the resistance struggle against the Nazis during the Second World War. So do you get a sense from the, the materials at the time how Germany dealt with, not just in terms of finding the, the culprits, protecting troops and, and others in this period? I get an impression, but it, it is a very hard subject because the Third Reich was a very chaotic government. On the, on the surface, everything was well structured, but it was an illusion. In reality, you had all these competing agencies and government organizations 
that were fighting against each other. And that was something Hitler did deliberately. And that also means that it is extremely hard to see what the Germans actually knew about what was happening. There was a man named Heinrich Kleve, who was from the Militärärztliche Akademie and who was responsible for, for example, investigating the French biological weapons program, because that actually fell into German hands in 1940. And he also conducted investigations into the enemy use of biological and chemical weapons uh, sabotage during the Second World War. So he tried to gather a lot of information about who used biological weapons and who used chemical weapons and uh, how they did it. But he only had a small staff available. And I can see that there's a lot of information that was not shared with him. So his material is widely quoted. There was a book published by a German researcher in the 1990s. But it is, of course, limited by the fact that Heinrich Kleve didn't actually know that much about what was going on. For example, I now can see that biological weapon sabotage also occurred in Czechoslovakia in 1939-40. There was a resistance group called Obrania Naroda who conducted acts of uh, biological sabotage and they planned a very large scale attack inside the Third Reich, but their group was destroyed by the late 1939-40. and 40. I have to make a little advertising. I know some Czech historians are actually working on publishing uh, something about this later this year. So hopefully we will soon know more about what happened in Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia. But this is something that was not mentioned in Heinrich Kleve's documents. So it's actually very difficult to decipher what the, what the Nazis actually knew and how they reacted. I can see that different agencies reported that here a biological sabotage happened and here somebody tried to use poison and here they arrested somebody. But how much was actually reported back to the German high command is actually very unclear to me. And it was not only the Poles who used chemical and biological weapons. We also talking about Soviet partisans and Soviet commandos, the Czechs, and presumably others. But by the late 1942 and 1943, a picture had emerged that chemical and biological weapons were being used against the Third Reich. And it was necessary to somehow respond. Hitler had already issued an order that he did not want the development and the research and development of biological weapons. So he made it clear that only defensive research into biological weapons were allowed. So he did allow, for example, defensive measures, for example, the development of vaccines and uh, so on to take place. We know that Heinrich Kleve tried to uh, implement an early version of the biosecurity system. So facilities like medical facilities that worked with pathogens had to create inventory control, make sure whenever they removed destroyed pathogens that they were destroyed in a safe way so somebody couldn't steal it and keep things locked up. He had actually first implemented it in France because there had been an instance in 1942 where some biological sabotage had been suspected in Nazi-occupied France. And later he instituted something similar in Poland following the case of the WKZO and the destruction of the WKZO. 
But how much of all of this was actually implemented is, of course, extremely hard for me to say, because, again, we are talking about competing agencies. And furthermore, the Nazis also implemented a large degree of secrecy about the subject. By 1943, it was decided to censor all talk about biological warfare in the Third Reich. I can speculate why that happened. But in any case, information was not shared. So, for example, if a German Wehrmacht unit in Eastern Europe was told that this uh, laboratory has to be closed down or this facility has to be uh, restricted, uh, put under restrictions, they were not told why they should do it. So that probably also influenced how eager they were to carry out these orders. And uh, there's actually a report from 1943 that says that a lot of the orders that had been issued regarding how to implement biosecurity efforts were actually not implemented by, for example, the German Wehrmacht, because they didn't understand why they had to carry out these orders. So the German secrecy in some ways helped the Germans because it would probably have caused panic and unrest in the German public if they had uh, Germans had knew that enemy saboteurs were carrying out acts of sabotage, including with chemical and biological weapons. On the other hand, it also hampered the, the, the German efforts to create a coordinated and structured response to the threat, including by sharing information about enemy use of uh, chemical and biological weapons. Fantastic. Um, now, you've managed to anticipate my final question, um, which was going to be, I, I guess, to ask you to explore in a bit more detail why you think that the history of these uh, chemical and biological warfare is so marginal in our kind of mainstream remembering of these of the conflicts and not in in Poland but also in other national contexts. So I guess the question I could get you to finish on would be why do you think it's important to unearth these histories? It is important first of all because we what we are talking about is uh, the famous weapons of mass destruction. Any case where so-called weapons of mass destructions, and let me stress, I actually think it is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, but anyway, any case where such weapons, uh, WNDs, are used are, in my opinion, very important. Another reason why this is important is that it is actually, from a moral point of view, a much more complicated case. We know, for example, the Japanese used biological weapons during the Second World War, and even before that, against the Chinese. And that is a much more clear-cut case. I mean, uh, the Japanese con conducted a war of conquest and extermination against the Chinese. They used biological weapons. They conducted very horrible experiments. And uh, it is easy to condemn the use of biological weapons by Unit 731. In the case of Poland, it is much more morally ambiguous because they were occupied by an enemy, they were facing extermination. It is important to understand that the, the Polish Jewry was more or less completely exterminated during the Second World War, but a lot of Poles thought that they would be next in line. I have family in Poland. I once asked my grandmother how many we had lost during the Second World War, and she thought about it for a moment and said, we lost 20 family members during the Second World War. And that is not unusual. I have documents that proves that two of my family members uh, were killed at Auschwitz. This was the condition during the Second World War. 
And while I actually do believe that the Poles had intended to use chemical and biological weapons even before the war, I certainly do believe that the scale and intensity of the use actually were very much influenced by the genocidal conditions faced by the Poles in both Soviet-occupied Poland and Nazi-occupied Poland, and the fact that they were facing uh, destruction, complete destruction. And uh, when you actually look at the plans that the Nazis have for not only Poland, but also all of Eastern Europe, for example, Generalplan Ost, you can see that these plans were really, truly genocidal. It was in these conditions that the use of chemical and biological weapons occurred. And for me, it also makes it much more ambiguous whether or not it, from a moral point of view, was a good idea. Yes, so in putting this show together, uh, one question that has been on my mind is this issue of utilising weapons, which were prohibited um, at the time in such uh, desperate situations. I actually think that the moral ambiguity about the use of biological weapons is actually exemplified in two of the persons in uh, the article I have written. There is, for example, uh, General Kazimierz Solskowski, I hope I pronounce his name correctly, who was actually the Polish delegate at the Geneva negotiations in 1925 that resulted in the Geneva Protocol banning the use of chemical and biological weapons in warfare. There is actually a memorial in Warsaw dedicated to him for his work for disarmament and peace. But he was also later the head of the Polish Home Army at the Polish government in exile. And I can see from some of the documents that he was actually one of the persons who actually gave instructions for the use of biological warfare sabotage against the Nazis. So he actually exemplifies this strange schisma in Poland, that on the one hand, the Poles actually did a lot for disarmament and uh, arms control in the interwar period, including negotiating the Geneva Protocol. But uh, he he was also one of the first to actually give orders for the use of such weapons uh, while he was serving the Polish government in exile. Another person who is interesting to highlight in that regard is Dr. Franciszek Witaszek. Again, we have a tendency to think that biological weapons are evil. So anybody who uses poisons or biological weapons must by their very nature be evil. But all accounts about Dr. Vitasek highlights that he was a brilliant scientist. He was a brilliant doctor. He helped a lot of people. He was also very much a reluctant bio-warrior. He doesn't fit the picture you might have of a bioterrorist. He had great moral struggles about the use of uh, biological weapons in Posen against the Nazis. He also, to some extent, tried to restrict the use of biological weapons. For example, there were considerations about food uh, poisoning or infecting German food facilities, but because he knew that children, including Polish children, uh, would occasionally steal food from these facilities, he refused to sanction the use uh, of poisoning and uh, bacterial infection against such facilities. He also refused to sanction the use of infection of German wounded soldiers who came through Posen from the Eastern Front in trains. There were considerations to use biological weapons against these vulnerable people, and he would have none of it. 
so he was involved in the use of biological weapons. Uh, there's no question about it that he was developing and researching and producing biological agents that was used for killing Germans. But on the other hand, he also tried to restrict uh, the use. He didn't talk to his wife about it, Halina Vitasek. It was only after her husband was arrested that she realized that he was involved in resistance work. But he did go to uh, the Catholic Church and talked with Bishop of Posen. He was a personal friend, I believe, and uh, he made confession to him and sought moral clarity about the use. And the bishop actually encouraged him to do what he was doing because it was the right thing to do when Poland was facing extermination. So, um, yeah. He actually exemplifies this moral dilemma about whether or not it's a good thing to use what is essentially an evil weapon in order to fight evil itself. So I think these two persons are very interesting to highlight in that regard. Well, Robert, that's us for today. It's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you. And I'm sure people will be getting in touch with you if they have other threads for you to, to tease. So all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for coming along and, and thanks very much to our uh, to audience for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time.